There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 114. Today on the show, we're joined by the president and CEO of the National Deer Alliance, Nick Pinizzotto, and we're talking deer hunting, deer policy, deer management, and much, much more. Welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we're going to be joined by the president and CEO of the National Deer Alliance, Nick Pinizzotto. And we're going to discuss a lot of different topics that I think any and all deer hunters should be interested in. The NDA is a group that started a couple of years back, and you've likely heard me and Dan talk about it a few times in the past. And since Nick took the helm last fall, some pretty exciting things have been going on over there. So, once we get Nick on the line, we're going to be asking him all about what the NDA is, what it's up to, and then we're going to dive into some of the most important issues related to deer across the country and what we as hunters can do now to make sure that there are plenty of healthy deer, great habitat, and hunting habitat, or excuse me, hunting opportunities available for all of us in the generations to come. But before Nick joins us, Dan and I have a few updates that we need to share from our own hunting world. So, Dan, what's new with you? <laughs> I was hoping you would go first because uh, since the last time we talked, other than shoot my bow, I have not done anything. Like this past weekend was a family weekend, so we went to a parade and just basically played and you know hung out with the fam kind of weekend while uh, I shot my bow maybe three or four times over the past five or six days. So that's not bad, but, uh, but yeah. So uh, I didn't set any tree stands this weekend. I didn't do any food plot stuff this weekend. So I kind of slacked on that end. Well, Hey, at least you shot your bow better than nothing. That's right. I, I, that's I picked right. up the slack for you. Okay. Cause I have had like a gauntlet of a past couple days and right. like everything has gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like a debacle of a three day of the past three days. Long story short, 
the big things I've been doing is um, I, we've talked about it a few times, but not a whole ton. My family has a small property up in northern Michigan, right? Where you know we've got our deer camp up there. That's where I you know grew up, deer hunt, learning to deer hunt and all that kind of stuff. But the last I don't know fifteen years, maybe a little longer than that, the deer population has really really struggled up there. The habitats changed a lot. There's not as much food available. The deer population has gone way down, and because of that, we've hardly seen any deer, let alone kill anything, for almost two decades now. So, over the past few years, I've been talking about trying to do some habitat improvements up there, trying to do some work, and finally, we started doing something last year. Last year, we started clearing out an area for our first first our first food plot, and then this spring, we have decided well, we've been able to kind of take it to the next step and finish clearing it out. And then this past weekend, we went up there to try to actually get it planted and ready to go. So the bad news was that just like, <laughs> tell you what, weeds have just been like the biggest pain in my butt this year. Yeah. So not only is my food plot down here in Michigan all weeded up and grown over, but when we got to our northern Michigan place, we sprayed it earlier this summer. We went back up there Sunday, and it's grown up all to heck again, way, way, way high. And I was hoping my dad was going to be able to go and spray a second time over the summer, but he couldn't. So, unfortunately, between us maybe not killing off everything as well as we could have the first time and then not getting to do a second run, super weedy, and we just don't have big equipment. Like, I'm operating with a little tiny 12-inch disc on the back of my four-wheeler. So, we tried spraying everything down Sunday, and we were doing that with little hand sprayers because that's all we had up there, so that was horrible. And then we thought, okay, if we can spray everything, hopefully that chemical will absorb into the root system so that when we cut everything 24 hours later hopefully if even if we don't kill everything when we cut it and disc it some of that weed kill will continue to kill it in the long run so we sprayed on sunday uh, yeah monday then we came in and luckily we had a neighbor who had a brush hog he was able to mow this area down that was a huge help because otherwise our plan was literally to go up there with like sickles and just sickle down all the weeds over like a half acre which would have been a nightmare um, and you know, this isn't that exciting of a story. I guess we just spent like 10 hours trying to get rid of weeds and trying to disc up this area with my little four wheeler disc. And I bent the receiver on my dad's new four wheeler because oh this disc is a piece. Of, I don't know. It works, but it's kind of a piece of crap too. And the thing kept popping off cause I was trying not to mount the disc on there. It's kind of a complicated way that this thing mounts to a four wheeler, but I didn't want to bend this thing anymore, so I was trying to have it tight enough that the disc would stay on, but not so tight that it would crank this receiver anymore and break it. Well, because of that, like 10 times the disc popped off, so I'd have to put the four-wheel on ramps, do the whole thing over again. So it was just a long, long, hot, miserable day. We finally got it all in. We got limed it. We got fertilizer. We got it planted, but I just don't know. It's gonna be <laughs> if there's anything green coming out of there this fall when I come back I'll be I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I have the I've not I don't have the highest expectations I suppose is what I'll say. Right. Right. So that was yesterday, and then today I come back and I'm like I gotta start working on these stupid food plots down here because you know like you like I told you last time that one section didn't get sprayed over the summer, so I thought okay I better spray it now I gotta try to hire someone to come in with a brush hog. And I went in there to try spray it today, and it's even worse than I thought it was going to be. Like, it's like, it's not six foot tall weeds, it's like 10 foot tall weeds. It literally, it's like a rainforest. Yeah. It's insane. So I decided just to abandon half of it. I'm just going to let it stay up in that thick cover, and I'm just going to 
put my energy into the one section and try to get it cleared out, but it's a debacle. And uh, how big of an area is the the really tall weeds? I would say it's probably an acre to an acre and a half. Okay. Somewhere. So, so I had one of my best hunting years once where the farmer planted the seed. Then he came through with his fertilizer or he did one of the two things for, you know, he, he planted and then he did fertilizer. I'm not sure what goes first, but then the water came up high over this entire field and it, it, uh, it, I guess killed the seed, the soybeans or the corn that was in there. And then the water receded, the fertilizer was still there. And it made the weeds grow 10, 12 foot tall, right? Just like you said, a, a giant mm -hmm. rainforest. And that was some of the best hunting I have ever had, just sitting on the edge of this. Um, me and my buddy Ryan watched uh, watched a booner, true 170-class deer, fight off satellite bucks all day long on this opposite end of this field. That's awesome. It was pretty cool. So it might – you know. Who knows? It might turn into a mini bedding area or staging area for you. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm looking at it as now. Like maybe there's a silver lining here. Like because, you know, before I ever started working on this area as a food plot at all, it was just grass. Like I don't know what kind of grass it was, but just short grass that grew up maybe three, four feet tall in the summer. And it was all the same, you know, just some kind of basic, I don't know what it is, but it was not providing a lot of cover. Deer never used it, nothing. Well, then I started putting these food plots in, and that was great, and I've added some cover, some other things. But now what happened, you know, like I mentioned, is that because of the fact that I'd sprayed it all this summer, and now all these new weeds have taken, you know, taken seed and grown in there, it is like a, a really incredible diversity of plant growth in there. I mean, tons of stuff. And i got to believe, you know, we've talked to a lot of habitat guys that talk about the importance of natural forage. Um, I got to believe there's some serious food in all of these forbs and bushes and weeds and whatever the heck all this stuff is. I don't know what it is, but there's a ton of stuff out there and it's thick and there's lots of greenery. And like you said, I think there will probably be deer bedding in it. I'm mean, actually funny. You mentioned it. I actually bumped a doe that was bedded in it when I was driving my four wheeler through. Um, so who knows, maybe it'll actually help this area. I'll still have a pretty nice size food plot. Um, and now there'll be some really great cover on my property, which before usually the great covers on the neighbors. So now I'm going to have like an acre section that's really nice and thick right adjacent to my food plot. So really on either side of my food plot, one side's my neighbors, which has great cover. Now I'm going to have another chunk on my side, on the other side of the food plot, great nice. bedding on either side. And now my little food plot's going to be tucked right in the middle and completely secluded. Now because of how thick all this growth is, you can't see the road at all. So now it's even better than my food plot screen. I've got like a food plot or a food plot screen world it's just like <laughs> <laughs> acres and acres of um isolation so nice. i don't know who knows maybe it'll all work out okay well good luck with that mark thank you but uh, man i just i spent the last hour literally just before i got in here to record this driving around my four-wheeler on the one section i'm trying to reclaim and you know, like i said 10 foot tall weeds and I'm driving my four-wheeler through it, spraying behind me, and then all the pollen and bugs and grasshoppers and everything are yep. flying off the weeds in front of me and my hair and my eyes. And I've got so many, like, pricks all over my arms, and I'm snotting and sneezing and sweating. And Sounds like sounds to me like you're complaining. 
<laughs> I guess I guess if that was my work day, it's probably better than your work day. <laughs> I just had to give you shit. Well deserved, probably. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe I'll shoot a booner over it. Mm-hmm. I saw a shooter in uh, on my mission farm. I know. I saw uh, the pics, man. Well, that one. That's that's. I got a whole oh, bunch of stories I haven't told. Different one. Different one. Oh, yeah. Boy. So really fast because we're running out of time here. But um. Last week, I was doing, you know, drive around the surrounding area, and I saw two giants, including the one that I posted a video of on Facebook and Instagram, I think. And that, I mean, that's a really nice Michigan buck. And as I'm sitting there watching these deer from the side of the road, the landowner drives over. And yeah. Start, and I'm like, oh, geez, he's not going to be right. happy with me. But I said, I'll just stick around and talk to him. And long story short, I have tentative hunting permission there. Aha. So that was awesome. You see how that works? Yes, it worked out really well. Just, you know, just got to chat people up and uh, be a decent human being, and sometimes things work out. And sometimes that's tough. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think I've got hunting permission there. It sounded like he's, he wanted me to check back in, but sounds like I could hunt there. And then, like three days ago, I saw the buck that I got on trail camera here on my main Michigan property. He came out in the soybean field at, like, before 8 o'clock. Um, so I got a little bit of video of him way off in the distance. Um, so that was cool. He's not as big as I think he, as I thought he was going to be. Um, but, uh, he's probably in the one thirty somewhere on there is a three year old. I'm guessing maybe a four year old. I'm not sure yet, but, uh, nice deer. So that's cool. Nice. What are you using? Just your binoculars or do you got a spotting scope too? Just been using my binos. Binos. I got yeah, you. I can, I can just see this field and where my food plot is from a little hill I can sit up on and I check it out all the time. And, uh. Yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll get uh, some more footage here leading into this final couple weeks before September and get the stupid food plot in. And what's cool is that I can watch that food plot, and that's, you know, I've seen Holyfield a number of times back there. I've seen all sorts of deer up back. Number I heard Ferguson, the buck I killed last year. I watched him a couple times before getting in there to hunt, so it's a great situation where I can scout it from afar and then, you know, make the move at the right time. Hey, I got a question for you. Um, yeah. Any any update on that buck that uh, we kind of named Boner City? <laughs> you know, I tried to call him BC. But <laughs> okay. This is, you know, this is a PG-13 podcast. Yeah, it really does air that way sometimes. <laughs> no, he disappeared, man. That was like a one-time deal. I, oh, I got well. pictures of him twice. He was a stud, though. I would love to kill a buck like that. Super tight and tall. Right. That was awesome. Now, can I have permission to steal that name and name a buck? Name a buck that. It has to be a buck deserving of it, though. Okay, so I have to okay, – I'll show you a picture and I'll say, hey, Mark, can I name <laughs> yeah. this buck Boner City? And then you'll say, uh, no, it doesn't meet the you know the, the, the characteristics or yes, it does meet the characteristics. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. All right, cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> All right. Keep me uh, keep me updated on trail camera photos and whatnot so we can <laughs> we'll do. update we'll our do. audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're gonna love it. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> so with that said, I guess we better we better move on to uh, to the real stuff here and take a quick break to thank our partners at Sika Gear and then we'll give Nick a call. So this week for Sitka Store, we're joined by David Brinker, one of Sitka Gear's marketing team members, and his story took place a few years back when he was invited on an absolute dream hunt chasing whitetails on Will 
Primos' property. Now, after a few days of tough hunting, Will recommended that David try a different spot. But to do so, he told David that he'd need to leave his traditional archery equipment behind and instead take a gun. Now, this was tough for David as he loves using his bow, but he agreed. So Will dropped David off at the tree stand with his gun in hand, and David will take the story from here. Just about the time Will gets around the corner in his, his gator, I can just start to hear the sound fade off, and I get settled in there. But, and I got this Henry 4570 that he loaned me out of his gun cabinet. Beautiful gun. I've never shot it in my life. Um, looks like you could kill an elephant with the cartridge. I, I'm not a gun guy, but don't know much about him. And uh, he, uh, he gets around the corner there, and I'm sitting there, and literally not within seconds, I hear, man. I hear a buck grunting, and I'm like, oh, where's that coming from? And I look over at the first trail he told me they may come from on my left, and I see these white tines pop out, and I could immediately tell it was a mature buck that was a shooter buck chasing this doe. Well, the buck pushes the doe by me at eight yards, and the whole time I'm thinking to myself is, why didn't I bring my bow? Why didn't I bring my bow? Why didn't I bring my bow? And uh, he comes in my shooting lane. He's so close. I put this. I, I, it's a lever action. And um, I, when I saw him come the trees, I'd already, I'd already put around the chamber, and pulled back the hammer. And uh, when he came in the shooting lane, eight yards, he was so close. I put the scope, and all I could see was brown hair. So all I could do was try to acquire. I could see where his shoulder was moving, like the crease of his shoulder was moving back and forth. And I just, I'm like, that looks about right. Boom. <laughs> And this is all literally like within, I mean, under five minutes from Will, when Will left me. So uh, Will had heard me shoot. He'd shoot. He barely probably even got back to the, the place. And uh, so here he comes firing up the road in this gator with a cast, you know. He goes, you get one? I said, yeah, I got one. And uh, we walk over there and, and uh, had a good time uh, talking about it. You know, I, I grew up watching, watching all Will's videos on you know in the west i watched a lot of all of his films and so he was a, a hero of mine growing up so it was it was a very surreal moment um spent with somebody i grew up watching but also a pretty pretty good lesson learned in terms of if you feel like you should bring your bow just bring both <laughs> or just <laughs> but no it was great i had, it was it was an awesome experience and and something i'll never forget that my friends was a sick story if you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now let's get back to the show and get Nick on the line. All right, now with us on the line is Nick Pinizzotto. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, we, uh, you, you and I get to chat quite a bit, but it's nice to be able to chat publicly here on the podcast, Nick. Um, we're excited to talk about a lot of different things. There's some cool things going on right now with what you're working on over at the National Deer Alliance. But before, I guess, we get into all of that, could you share with our audience a little bit about who you are, what your background is, and what you're doing now? Sure, absolutely. So, boy, who I am, that's kind of a, <laughs> that's a tough question we probably all struggle <laughs> with. But, uh, you know, I've always identified myself, first and foremost, as an outdoorsman, and even deeper than that, a deer hunter. So uh, I grew up in western Pennsylvania where deer hunting is, even more than a passion, it's almost a religion there. It's, uh, you know, one of the, the craziest states in many ways when it comes to deer hunting from everything from passion to struggles with deer management. So I grew up around it. So, you know, it became natural to me 
to gravitate in that direction. I grew up in a, a small house with a brother and a sister, my mom and dad, and you know, being in a small house, you just want to be outside. And for me, it was out there learning about deer and getting excited about them. So uh, with a little bit of luck and a, a long career in conservation and outdoors, I was lucky enough to find myself uh, now in the position to get this National Deer Alliance off the ground and, and running. And as a lifelong deer hunter, someone that's been passionate about it, it's um, really a, a cool opportunity and something that I hope deer hunters across the country will also get excited about. Now, before you were with the National Deer Alliance, you were with the Sportsman's Alliance, is that right? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just back it up a little bit. Uh, when I I lived in, in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, for actually most of my life, and I worked for 11 years for a uh, conservation organization known as the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. So I've been in conservation and outdoors work for a long time. I, I left there, though, to go to North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota, where I was the CEO of Delta Waterfall Foundation uh, for a time, and then from there to the Sportsman's Alliance, where I was working primarily on anti-hunting related issues and, uh, you know, all things that threaten our, our outdoor sports, hunting, fishing, and trapping. And it was after being there for a little more than uh, two, three years that the National Deer Alliance opportunity came available. So uh, that's kind of my career path to this point. Why why have you spent your lifetime working in conservation like this? I, you know, from what I've seen, it's a relatively thankless job at times. It's a tough job. What's drawn you to this and kept you there so long? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's. I wouldn't say it's thankless because you're thanked in so many different ways. You know, it's definitely hard work. It's it's really passion for me. A lot. I tell people that the Deer Alliance for me is really a passion project. I went from running, you know, organizations in the past with you know lots of employees and lots of responsibility and having personal assistance and all these things to being the one person to get deer lines off the ground. So some people look at that and they say, well, that's kind of crazy. You know, why would you do that? And I just would describe my whole career in conservation the same way. I knew, first of all, I was never a big fan of school. I was a fan of the outdoors, but I knew that school was a necessary process that I had to go through, you know, to, to go to college and to eventually get a master's degree if, if I wanted to do the types of things I wanted to do. But even though knowing that conservation wasn't going to be a big, high-profile money career like, you know, accounting or being an attorney or a doctor or these types of things, it's just where my passion was, and it's what I wanted to do, and I always dreamed about the idea of giving back to the sports that really defined my childhood and growing up, becoming a young adult, and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's what I think drove me from the very beginning, and I, I think with having a little bit of success in my career combined with, I think, a lot of luck developing relationships eventually led to this really cool and unique opportunity. So, um, as I said, you get rewarded in a lot of different ways when you get to work in these environments, and I've I've really enjoyed really every step of the way to this point. Yeah, well, I think um, I'm very thankful that there are people like you and many others out there who are willing to to, you know, to devote their lives to these types of causes. So important. Um, now, before we dive more into what the National Deer Alliance is doing now and a whole bunch of stuff like that that we're interested in talking about, you meant, you started off when you talked about who you are. You know, Other than just being an outdoorsman, you are a deer hunter, first and foremost. And from what I understand and what I heard and saw, 
your 2015 deer hunting season was a pretty, I'd almost call it an epic one, given the ending. Can you tell us about your season last year? Sure. It was a great season. And, you, you know, you define greatness in, in a lot of different ways. But in terms of hanging tags on good animals, last year was was pretty good for me. Um, of course, I grew up hunting whitetail deer, and that's always been my main passion, particularly archery hunting. And I started off my season really early by going down to Kentucky for the first time and hunting their early season with the outside chance of maybe seeing a good deer in velvet, which is something I'd always wanted to do. And really, it's called it a little bit of luck and good fortune with just two days into their season down there. I'm sitting in a tree stand. It's 90 degrees. And I took a, a really a nice 14-point velvet buck down there, which was just a, th- a real thrill for me. It, it was a great hunt. And you know, it's interesting, the day before I got chased out of the tree stand by a thunder and lightning storm. As I mentioned, it's 90 degrees, so it felt like summer. It felt odd being out there. So that's how I started the season, just two days in. And from there, I, would became, I, I should have mentioned I, I live in central Ohio now, which is really whitetail central, big bucks just about every corner, you know, around every corner here. So I, I do definitely try to stretch out my season and focus on the older deer, not necessarily the biggest scoring deer. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but uh, definitely the, the oldest, most challenging deer. So the season was dragging, dragging along in Ohio, had seen some good deer. Uh, but luckily we got a little break, and my dad and I got together and went out to South Dakota to chase mule deer now. I grew up with whitetails, but as soon as my my first ever mule deer hunt when I moved to North Dakota, I was immediately hooked. I mean, they're just beautiful, beautiful animals, and they almost just stare right through you when you're hunting them. And they're a great challenge as well. So I was really excited to take a break from whitetails and get out there and chase mule deer. And my dad and I both took really nice mule deer in South Dakota, and just just had a great time. You know, for for me too, it was very exciting because I took him out west that was his first western hunting experience so he got a chance to experience it as well and i think i've probably got him hooked now but uh then coming back to ohio i still had that that antler tag in my pocket and one of the things in ohio we're we're really blessed to have a long season so we start the last week of september and we go all the way to the second week of february so there's plenty of opportunity and i had been chasing this older deer that i had known about since the previous season and many, many encounters with them, and as winter started to set in, I spent a lot of time just patterning him and narrowing down where I thought he was spending a lot of his wintering time, and went out and hung two stands on January 14th. Now, again, a lot of people's seasons are over already at that point, but I hung one for, uh, each stand was for a different wind direction, because I never knew exactly which way it'd be blown when I showed up to the farm, and I showed up to the farm the following morning, that would be January 15th selected the right one based on the wind and lo and behold i finally had the ultimate encounter with that deer so you know to me to take a really mature older deer like that in the winter where there's almost no cover for you is the hunter they've seen it all at this point and to do that with a bow that was really one of my proudest moments as an archery hunter and uh it also worked out that i, I shot a deer all the way back in early September, the first one and the last one all the way in late January. So I would say that I certainly got my money's worth chasing <laughs> deer all across the country last year. Yeah, that's for sure. Dan, that, that's how you're supposed to do it. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, knock on wood. That's that's what we're getting wrong. He he uh, had a heck of a season there. Uh, so about it. 
So I'm curious. Yeah, I always tell people. I always tell people that I'm. I'm not. A, I mean, I've had the luck, the fortune of taking a lot of really nice deer over the years. But I always tell people that it has nothing to do with my skill. It's just that I'm not very good at giving up. So I, I will slug it, <laughs> slug it out out there, and put in more time than most people. So I certainly earn them in the end. Yeah, I can definitely. I feel like that's my one skill set that when it comes to deer hunting too is that I'm just I'm just too stubborn to give up for sure. Right. Um, so I kind of want to drill a little bit more into this late season buck. You you said you you had known him the year before, and you started patterning him throughout the year and had encounters. Can you just tell us how you were able to, to some degree, pattern him and finally eventually get it down to two stands? Can you go into more detail yeah. on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I was chasing a different deer to start the season, a really good deer that I've known for four years now, and I believe he's still running out there. Uh, but that deer disappeared on me in mid-November. I had a really close encounter with him. He was bedded with a doe. You know, we're in the peak right now. This is mid-November. And I, I think I just got a little too close to his home, and he bailed out of there and went somewhere else for the rest of the year. But uh the deer I ended up shooting is a deer that I nicknamed Curfew, and I know not everybody's fond of naming deer, but it helps me keep track of them. And he showed up, again, I had pictures of him the previous winter, which would have been 2014, and he showed up again in mid-October, just a horse. So he's, he's a clean eight point, but he's got really long brow tines, about nine inches long, and just real, real massive rack, but he was very recognizable. And like I said, I had a lot of encounters with him during the regular archery season, and then even in the the late muzzleloader season, I had some encounters. But is one I always tell people, you know, you, uh, the rut gets all the gets all the news. People always book their hunts around the rut. You know, that's the time to be in the woods, and I think it's just because they see so many deer, and they have sightings of big deer. But I always tell people that if you have not hunted that winter season, you're really missing out because to me, that is, other than the very early season that you can you can do in places like Kentucky, I believe late season, winter season, is your best opportunity to really pattern an older deer. And the reason you can do that is because food is so is so important to them. So in this case with curfew, um, the late muzzleloader season gave me a chance to sort of scout him from a distance because I was just sitting in a blind and I had these encounters but I watched all his movements I used that information in combination with my trail cameras that I had out there to really start narrowing down where I thought he was living and those areas provided good cover and good bedding and also there were uh, soybeans in in those fields in the area I was hunting so there was plenty of you know food for the deer to get to it was actually drawn in several deer from outside the area because I'm not sure if the farmers Equipment just wasn't very good or what, but there were an awful lot of beans left in that field, and the deer were not only hitting the beans, but they were also pulling up some of the decaying plant matter as well. So it just sort of became a hot spot. So I knew that eventually if I if I could keep getting into that area where I thought he was bedding and, and feeding, that I'd have a real good shot. So really it, it really wasn't rocket science. The trick was just being able to get in there without spooking the deer so that whenever he did get up and move, he'd come my way. And, it, you know, I would do other things that people might find a little unusual, too, and that is not go running in there while it's still dark in the morning. You know, you can't see anything. You have no idea where these deer are bedding. If you have open country like you do in the wintertime, typically, you can see a long way. So I could just work my way up to my stand slowly, glass all the areas ahead, make sure he wasn't bedded 
nearby and then just get into my stand. So if that was another tactic, I think that was probably be a little different for what uh, most people would do. So anyway, just honed in on them and eventually got my opportunity. And uh, I, I'm probably making it sound more simple than it was. But at the end, it just comes down to drive and determination. And like I had told some buddies, I said, I don't think there's anyone else out in Ohio hanging tree stands on January 14th. So, (laughs) you know, you have to be willing to go that extra mile if you want to shoot deer of that age class and that quality. And I'm just I'm glad that it paid off. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I when I saw that you killed that buck, I was kind of shocked. I was like, I can't believe that. He was still hunting. I was I was already in postseason mode. You know, we were done here January first, and I completely forgot that you guys were still going down there. Um, and I'd filled my Ohio tag earlier, so I wasn't thinking about Ohio. So that was uh, that was pretty cool to see. Great deer too, and uh, it's cool to see it all come together like that. When you, I, one of my favorite things. You know, it's fun when you get a bonus buck. You know, when you're just hunting and a buck shows up and it just happens. But I love when you can actually put a specific plan in place. And actually have it come, you know, turn out the way you want it to. That's doesn't happen all the time, but it's pretty awesome when it does. Yeah, it rarely happens, frankly. You know, you, something <laughs> usually there's a twist or turn in there that you weren't expecting typically. But like you said, when it does happen, it's incredibly satisfying, and it's hard not to be satisfied, really, with with the year I had last year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, do you have a, a, a dream buck this year in Ohio? Is that one from the past couple of years still around? Do you think? I hope so. You know, that's an interesting deer as well that uh, I actually passed on that deer when he was a three-year-old, and he's a six-year-old now, uh, assuming he's still out there. But this is a deer that doesn't show up on the property. I, and I should say I'm not hunting any kind of a special management property or anything like that. These are just essentially central o- Central Ohio farmland bucks. And this deer seems to summer somewhere else on, on a neighboring property, and doesn't tend to show up in my area until late September, early October. So if he's around, this is going to be a real monstrous type deer. I mean, this is a deer that has, he already has one eye gone uh, from fighting, and (laughs) one of his ears are split, and it just hangs there. So he's an an old warrior. And I I actually saw him and got a little bit of film on him last year, uh, early in the season. And to me, that was even just such a great privilege. So uh, if he's out there, I'd, I'd love to chase him again. But if not, I know that there are several others, uh, older deer out there that I'd be more than happy to hang a, uh, hang a tag on. But this is the exciting time of year, right? You're starting to get the pictures and you're getting your mm-hmm. gear ready. And so I'm getting, I'm definitely getting fired up. It's almost the best time of year because the anticipation right now, anything's possible, you know, like all yeah. the hopes and dreams are still ahead of us. And, um, as the season progresses, I become a slightly more and more depressed with the fact that it's not going to go the way I wanted it to. But this right now, it's all good. So, Absolutely. so I guess when you're not chasing these big bucks, Nick, you're working with the National Deer Alliance. Can you tell us? You know, we've talked a number of times on this podcast about the National Deer Alliance. You know, it launched. I think it was 2014. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what the National Deer Alliance is now, you know, if it's changed at all since the beginning, um, what that looks like today? Sure, and I, and I think it has changed quite a bit since the beginning. I remember, much like you, Mark, being at some of the early, you know, the deer summits and sitting there and listening to the folks talk about what they thought the National Deer Alliance was going to be. And even sitting there, I had questions in my own mind. Well, what is this group going to do? Who are they? 
um, what will they do that the other deer groups don't do. So at that time, I never saw myself even, even as a candidate, you know, for the CEO job running running the organization. So it's kind of funny that we ended up here now. But I think a really important thing happened back in May of last year, May of 2015, and that was they put together a solid board of directors, people from within the outdoor industry with a lot of experience who could really get the organization on the right track. That was key. And they said that, you know, one of the things we're going to set out to do right off the bat is we're going to hire a CEO because we need somebody to own this thing to actually do it. And we have to put our plan in place. We can't just keep talking about all the things we might do. We have to get really strategic about this and do everything we can to make this a successful organization to help deer and to help deer hunters, frankly. And that's when I started to become more interested in what was going on. And it also was very important to me that this organization would not be set up to compete with the existing deer organizations. And, in fact, Mule Deer Foundation, Whitetails Unlimited, and QDMA all have seats on the board of directors. So, in a lot of ways, the existing deer groups really grew NDA out of their own roots. So, to me, that was very important because the last thing we need is more competition in a, in a group to another group to just exist out there for the sake of being around. So I think that really set forth a lot of change with NDA. And then very shortly after I came on board, we got together not just with our board of directors, but we brought in folks from around the country, a uh, different level of, of expertise and experience to put together the first strategic plan for NDA. And that was a really critical moment for us because now it wasn't just conjecture and talking about all the things we could do. Now we're listing out the five or six key things that we're going to focus on and work on to, again, the most important thing, on behalf of deer and deer hunters. And that was a great moment, I think, in the history of the organization. I think we put together a a really good document, and that set in motion – really where we're at today with with the organization and that is we're just about ready to start trying to drive up membership numbers and get people excited about what we're doing we purposely haven't been doing that so you know mark you haven't you know you and i work together on this quite a bit so you understand the frustrations of we want to yell from the mountaintop about all the things going on with nda but we've purposely not been doing that and um i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about things we're going to be doing here in the future with the Mm -hmm. new website launch so on so that's that's kind of the history of where we are how we got to where we are today so so dan you know most people listening and as you know and obviously nick you know like i work with the national deer national deer alliance quite a bit so i'm pretty familiar with what's going on but i'm curious from an outside perspective dan if you can kind of sit in for our audience right now what is like the big thing you what's your big question mark around the national deer alliance what are you still confused about, if anything, about what they're doing or where they're going? Well, not necessarily confusion, but what I noticed is, you know, there's, you know, the National Deer Alliance was pretty active for a while on social media and then fell off. And I didn't notice it on any social media platforms. I didn't notice it in really any type of magazines or any other media that I was consuming. And I was just kind of curious, you know, like what's happening right now? You know, what is this transition period that you guys are going through? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I'm I'm glad you asked it because I'm going to talk about, I think, one of the, the frustrations I've had as the leader of this group, and, you know, Mark has shared this, and that is it's not a frustration with any person. 
it's just a frustration that we knew we had to purposely kind of lay back a little bit until we got our priorities in line and also to, to try to help clean up some of the things that happened at the very beginning. And what I, what I mean by that is when you're launching a new organization and you really don't know exactly what you're going to be, the tendency is for people to say a whole bunch of things about what you might do and people remember that. So some of the early press and information you were seeing in our earlier website had a lot of incorrect information. So I'm a person that likes to run ahead and, and you know, make some noise and get things done right away and, and make things happen. But I knew the wrong thing to do would be to try to drag a whole bunch of people in and have a whole bunch more media out there about what we're doing before we really knew would be detrimental in the long term. So we purposely laid back a little bit until we got those priorities in order. Now that we have them in order, we issued a press release uh, a little bit earlier this year that talked about the priority areas, and those areas are uh, wild deer conservation. So very clearly we're drawing the definition between wild deer and not wild deer. Uh, so we're focused on wild deer conservation. We're going to be focused on diseases. The, the big headliner there is two headliners, really chronic wasting disease and EHD, especially this time of year with EHD. So we're going to do a lot of work on those. Hunter access continues to be a problem out there. We have shrinking opportunities for people to go out and hunt deer, so we're going to work on that in the state and federal level. Uh, state and federal land management, so the existing public land that's out there, we want to make sure that, that's, that deer aren't forgotten in the management aspects of those properties, so we want to have good places for people to hunt. And I'm um, not remembering <laughs> all the ones I already told you. So those, those are the, the really the four of the key ones. Oh, I'm sorry, the other one was predators and competitors. So incre increasing problems with being able to control predators, which, as we all know, especially during fawning season, have a profound impact on deer. Um, that's, a, that's an area also where we run into a lot of anti-hunting issues. So people will say, well, nobody really comes out and tries to stop deer hunting. Well, if you really look at it, what they do is they battle us around the fringes and they do things like eliminate the opportunity for us to hunt coyotes or wolves, uh, bobcats, mountain lions, these types of things. So we're going to be working very hard on those issues to make sure that we can manage predators and keep everything in line out there for the betterment of, of deer and hunters. So those are the priority areas that we came out with. And then the next big step for us was to launch a brand new website. And, you know, this is one of, I think one of the first conversations that Mark and I had over a year ago now was the importance of getting this website launched. And I'm happy to report that very soon we're about to launch nationaldeeralliance.com the brand new version of that website. The old one has been taken down. The new one, I've been actually today working on it pretty much every minute of the day trying to get it in line with what we need. But that's an exciting time for us because now we have our house in order. We have a plan. We've already been working on some key things. And now we have a place to put all this information and to invite people to come see it and to hopefully join us because membership is free and ultimately, we can only be effective if we build up a huge membership of people who are really interested in working for deer and working for deer hunters. And that is really the spirit of what NDA is all about, to help us get this, these important policy issues taken care of on behalf of deer and hunters. And the only way to do that effectively is, is through grassroots and by getting the voices of hunters and other deer enthusiasts into the mix. So that's what we're all about, and we... I, I really want to have a big sigh of relief because we finally reached this point and it's, and it's an exciting time for us. Yeah, it is. How, 
how hard is it to have a a nationwide organization and have kind of a nationwide platform with maybe different parts of the country finding different topics higher on a priority list than other parts of the country? Yeah, and it's very challenging. You know, I should have mentioned, you know, we work on behalf of all deer, so we're talking whitetails, mule deer, blacktail, coos deer, even key deer. So there are very different issues all across the country, and even even in the whitetail range, state to state you have different uh, issues, different concerns. And I've said one of the big challenges was that every deer hunter has in their own mind a definition of what they consider the perfect deer hunt or the perfect deer hunting properties or situations. So it's very challenging, very different priorities across the country. I think the key for us will be to make sure we understand where we can be effective. Um, a lot of different issues going on. It would be very easy for us to chase after everybody's personal deer issue, but we just can't do that. We have to stand very close to our key priority areas and be effective in those areas without getting so broad that I'm constantly answering the phone, for example, of, you know, hey, can you come to our community because we have this deer problem or that deer problem? It's not that we don't care about those. It's just we have to be realistic in what we can accomplish and that's the big reason why we did the strategic plan to help us prioritize where those issues are. So, you know, of course, a mule deer issue in Arizona is very different than a whitetail issue in New Hampshire. So big landscape out there. We just have to remain focused, rely on our partners, and hopefully grow a little bit to be able to address as much as we can. So kind of related to that, I think one of the big questions that a lot of people have, both when the NDA first launched and now I think as we're in kind of our, our second, our relaunch maybe you might call it, um, why is there a need for this organization? You know, because there's already, you know, there's already QDMA. I'm already a member of that. I'm already a member of Mueller Federation maybe, or maybe some already a member of Whitetails Unlimited. Why is there an NDA? What, do you, what are we doing above and beyond these other groups? And that's a great question, and that's the question – that I asked myself back whenever NDA was first announced. And I think the biggest thing, the biggest way we differentiate ourselves is that we are really almost 100% policy-focused. So while the other organizations do work on policy, the reality is their missions are much more focused on conservation. Uh, they're a little more uh, specific and specific than we are, meaning of course, Mule Deer Foundation is only focused on mule deer and are doing a lot of conservation work and raising money for habitat work and these types of things. But they're not working full-time on policy. Same thing with QDMA, you know, helping people manage their land better, healthier deer, healthier habitat, but not as much time as they would like working on policy. Whitetails Unlimited, very much the same way. We're going to be focused on policy to help those groups have the time that they need to be focused on their conservation missions. You need both because, as I've said many, many times, we've reached a time in the country where the political science is more important now than the actual biological science. So we can literally go and sit in front of legislators and give them the best science and say, here's why we have to do this, but they may go another direction simply because public opinion or, or political science drives them in that direction. So it's a very, very interesting time in wildlife management period, whether we're talking deer or any other species for that matter. 
but deer being the most hunted species by far across the country, 83% of all hunters. So we're talking about 12 out of the 14 million hunters, about 12 million out of 14 million identify themselves as deer hunters. You can bet that politics and policy is woven into the fabric of everything deer hunting, everything from how to manage them in rural landscapes to having to answer to people who don't want you hunting deer, period. All of these things go into the political science of this, and that's where NDA is going to focus. So we're not going to try to grow some large organization. We're not going to have banquets and do those types of traditional fundraisers. We're going to be small, but we're going to be effective, and we're going to work directly on these issues, these policy issues, and hopefully get the grassroots community, the deer hunter, the average deer hunter out there to jump in with us and help us be effective. When when you mean small, do you mean a small organization or small in numbers? Well, that's a great question because I think what I, well, what, definitely what I mean by that is we we need to we need huge numbers of deer hunters to join us. You know, history has shown that deer hunters about one percent of them actually join an organization. That's very frustrating because, as I said earlier, about yeah, there's 12 million of them out there, but only one percent are joining. We need a whole heck of a lot more of them than that to join us. And as I mentioned, the membership is free, so there's really no barrier to joining. But organizationally, the last thing I want to do is grow some gigantic organization that costs the industry millions and millions of dollars just to keep it around. I would much rather have a small staff of just a few people that can be very effective at rallying the grassroots roots, understanding policy, and being effective on issues. So I just think that's a responsible way to do this. I'm not saying that someday we might not have, you know, eight or ten employees. I don't know that. We'll see where the, what the future holds. But in the near future, I think we can be really effective for not a lot of money, and that's, in my mind, how I really prefer to operate. So then here's here's my next question then that, that I'm assuming a lot of people are asking is what does that look like? You know, you talked about the types of action that the NDA, you're hoping the NDA is able to, to take, the type of impact you're hoping it can have. How do you actually see that happening? You know, what specifically will you and whoever is on the team going to be doing and or with or without the membership to actually change policy? Sure. And I think there are, there are a few different arms of that. So clearly I'm going to need another person or two to, that can focus on the actual policy, that can be expert in policy, that can understand what's going on in D.C. and also understand what's going on in the State House in Nebraska, for example. So we need help in that element of the organization for sure but another key part of it is going to be marketing and communication so having somebody that can be continually working on getting the word out to the membership who will be active on the grassroots ends of things so putting out good information we we do actually i have to say not to pat us on the back mark too much but i think we do a remarkable job of getting really good information out and i think people would be shocked to know how small of a team it, it is that does that I think we do a really good job, but I think that we're only scratching the surface. So yeah. we need someone that can really focus on getting the word out about an issue that people need to participate in, um, rolling their sleeves up and you know, helping us promote the organization, frankly, to keep us healthy, to keep industry excited about investing in us. So we constantly we have to prove ourselves in terms of being an effective organization. We also have to prove ourselves to legislators and decision makers because if you know, I walk in the, in the door to a state house and say, well, on behalf of my 10,000 members, 
across the country, they're going to look at me and laugh because that's not big enough. But if we can go in and say on behalf of our 200,000 members or even our million members, now all of a sudden we're going to start having some heft on some issues, and I think we're going to get a little better audience. So those are the two key areas, and definitely we need more help on policy, and we're going to need help with marketing and communications. And I also just I'm, – I'm a big fan of growing – I've, I've been in opportunities to grow organizations and programs in the past, and I'm a big fan of organic growth, where you just look for opportunities as they come and you, and you respond to those opportunities and not always try to project what you're going to be. So I don't want to necessarily build the framework out and try to fill it. I'd rather let that happen more organically. Makes sense. I got a, I got a question uh, about that, and and this is from the – you know, you, you mentioned only 1% of individuals of the, you know, 12 million hunters are involved in some kind of an organization similar to, you know, the, the National Deer Alliance. But we have, you know, millions of people on social media supporting uh, a hunting television show or, or something like that. How important is it for the leaders of the hunting community or the hunting industry to, you know, support, uh, uh, you know, an organization like this? I think it's everything. I had opportunities to, at SHOT Show and ATA Show, uh, several other shows this year to stand up in front of industry and say, listen, you owe it to deer to, to stand up and be part of this, meaning that, you know, their bread is buttered by deer. Like I said, 83% of all hunters identify as deer hunters first. Now, there are definitely hardcore waterfowlers and bird hunters and, and even some predator hunters, that type of thing. But really, the industry is driven by deer and deer hunting. So if we begin to take for granted that deer hunting is always going to be out there and it's always going to be wonderful, I think that's a fool's game to play. And I've been very open and honest with industry about that. And, you know, what's been interesting and has been really – I think exciting for me is that they get it. I've never heard a single person say, you know, this really isn't that important. I don't see why I need to get involved in it. So I think we have the support out there. I think that some are sitting back just to see who we're going to be ultimately and, and see some of our successes. And that's fine. I understand that. But in terms of why and why it's important, that's pretty clear and, and, and groups get it. And I think that ultimately we're going to be able to put the people in place because we're going to grow you know, a little bit with the help of industry. So really the, the whole the entire hunting industry really is, is driven by deer and every percentage point you take away in terms of the number of deer hunters that are, that are out there takes away a percentage point from the industry. And I don't think industry for sure is very interested in having that happen. Now, just to elaborate on that a little bit, and I don't want to sound like an asshole, but <laughs> but you do so often, though, Dan. I know, but, but what I'm getting at is some of these. You know, you you say you have the ear, and some of these guys are really interested in supporting the you know supporting a cause, but their social media, their programming, whatever it is, does not. That does not translate to what I'm seeing. I don't see a lot of television shows support a conservation cause or uh, or any type of media really other than you know some print support a conservation cause because it's not giving them a dollar amount 
on on the back end. And, you know, when you say, yeah, we think we have their ear. Do you think that is just to humor you or it's is it something that they're really concerned about? Well, I, I should have probably separated it into two baskets because I think what you're talking about now is more or less the the celebrity hunting group out there, the folks that have TV shows and the, you know these types of people. Mm-hmm. I I was more talking about people that own businesses to support you know that are supported by deer hunters. Yeah, and you can um, loop, so, you can loop that in as well. In yeah. my opinion, you don't see like when I go to a, a hunting website or I'm in a catalog or or any place that a, a company may advertise. I don't see that company saying we support X conservation cause. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying, and a lot of a lot of those folks will only do that if they're compensated directly in some way. But I I'm pretty excited to say, and people will see this when they go to the website we've got a a page on the website that is just dedicated to supporters i think people are going to be pretty surprised by the long list of pretty high profile people and companies that are supporting this and to be honest we have not given anybody a dime to say we support the nda and what it's all about good so yeah and my experience with other organizations and having to try to raise money and this type of thing is that usually They'll say it if you pay them to say it, and we, you know, we may get into that at some point down the road. But um, the reality is, is we've gotten kicked off here. We've got a really, really impressive group of people, and some of them that I haven't even had a chance to get on the website yet that are excited about this and understand the importance. So, I, I actually am was was impressed and continue to be impressed with the level of excitement that there is out there for the NDA. I think, though, to your point, Dan. There's definitely a difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. Amen. And I think, you know, you do see a whole lot of people um, that are like, yeah, I support X conservation organization or whatever. Join now. But that's about it. Like, they aren't actually doing anything. They're not really talking about a lot or trying to learn more or trying to educate their audience and stuff. Um, because like you said, maybe that's not, you know, that doesn't drive viewership that doesn't drive numbers and all that kind of stuff. Now, certainly there's, I don't want to generalize there's exceptions to that rule. There's tons of people that are doing a great job. And I think to, to your point, Nick, I think there's, there's some great examples of people that are supporting or will be supporting the national deer Alliance. But I think, um, I think there's a lot of room for more of it. Um, I, and I've been trying, you know, recently to try to do an even better job here with Wired to Hunt. And I hope a lot of other people are, whatever platform you have, to try to use it for a positive, a positive, make a positive difference. And, you know, like Nick said, we all depend on deer and habitat and all these tremendous resources for what we love to do. And if we don't do something about it, if we're not taking care of it, we're, we're all out of luck. So um, I think the responsibility is on everyone. I just see the numbers, right? From a you know from a pure number standpoint, I see the numbers on social media. I see the numbers on you know some of these web shows and whatnot, and it just takes a little bit of redirection over to let's say a National Deer Alliance saying, "Hey, it's very easy to do. Just sign up, and you can help save deer hunting. Right? You can help, you know." Yeah keep tradition alive and i i guess i'm not seeing that yeah yeah and i I think part of it i'm going to put part of that responsibility on my shoulders too because i i have to continually develop relationships with these folks 
and they have to have a comfort level that, number one, that I'm steering the ship appropriately, but number two, that this is a group they want to get behind because there is a little risk on their part as well to get tied up with you know with the wrong thing. So I understand some of the trepidation, but I'll just share a couple of examples that were just fresh today of where I needed a little bit of help from from a couple of these folks and got it immediately. So uh, earlier today, uh, as, as we're putting the finishing touches on this website, uh, you know, I was able to call up uh, Mike Hunsucker of Heartland Bow Hunter and say, Mike, can I get a quote from you, you know, on why NDA is important, why you support it in a photo, because I'd like to highlight that on the website. I mean, absolutely, anything you need. And immediately I got a quote. I had a, I had a picture sitting there. Uh, did the same thing today with with Dr. Grant Woods, who has uh, GrowingDeer.com, and you know Dr. Woods is certainly very well respected in our community, and absolutely happy to th- you know, thank you. He actually said, uh, "Thank you for allowing me to help support NDA." So part of that comes back to relationships that I have with these individuals, but I think part of it too is that they believe in what we're doing and can personally get excited about it. Um, but those are just two very recent examples, and I can count many, many others you know, over the last several months where I've had very similar interactions. So um, I think there's hope. I mean, they, they could always do more, but but maybe we, from the conservation or uh, organization, conservation organization community, didn't ask. You know, maybe we just assumed we wouldn't get help. So so far, my experience has been 100% positive and. I'm hoping that we can continue in that direction. Yeah, that's awesome. And those are two previous Wired Hunt podcast guests too. So (laughs) good (laughs) good job on their part. (laughs) Um, So I want want to talk issues. You know, I actually want to talk about some of the things that are, that you, they're keeping you awake maybe at night that you're thinking about that you see as something that a, that you need to be thinking about and concerned about as the leader of the National Deer Alliance, but also as us just everyday deer hunters that we need to be aware of. Um, is there anything in particular that, that's really top of mind for you right now? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple. Apathy in general is is one that keeps me up at night because I worry that not enough people keep, keep up with the issues or even, for that matter, understand how so many different issues impact deer. So, that's a big part of why NDA was formed to try to improve the apathy situation among hunters. But, you know, there are attacks on our, on our hunting sports every day that people don't even realize everything from, you know, you may, for example, you may look at a situation where an airline doesn't allow certain African trophies to be brought back into the country. And you may say, well, how, how does that impact a deer hunter? That has nothing to do with me. Uh, maybe I even oppose African safari hunting, for example, but people need to realize that there's a the very next step, the very easy step would be to say, well, you know, we're actually not going to allow you to fly any animal parts around the country. You're not going to be able to bring your antlers back from a western hunt if you go west or, or, or vice versa. Um, or, you know, we're not going to allow you to fly with, with your firearms or your bows and your, you know, your bows and arrows and your hunting equipment. It is not a very far stretch to get to that point next. So I, people need to really be aware of these things going on that constantly, as I'm talking about lobbying legislators about promoting our sports and, and promoting good conservation, there's another group of people out there that are doing the exact opposite against us, and it's all the time. And frankly, they've been quite effective at it. So I think just apathy and understanding that our sports are always in danger from that type of thing, especially now in the political environment that we're in. 
Disease is another big issue. Chronic wasting disease continues to pop up in different places across the country. And if you look at Arkansas this year, there's a state where going into the year, they thought they didn't have CWD. A few months later, dozens and dozens of cases of it, and everywhere they test, they're finding it. That's scary. That's very scary. We need to understand that disease better. I'm not going to say we we have all the answers, but I, I will say that people need to be concerned about it. It's very, very disappointing to me when I see, uh, you know, some people come up, people that there's that I that I think are smart people, but have some financial stake in the game. So they'll come out and say, "Oh, chronic wasting disease. That's not something we should worry about. It's not, it's not really hurting our deer populations." Well, you know what? I, I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case, but the science does not tell us that right now. What I would rather have people saying is, you know what? As a community, we need to come together and figure this disease out. Because if we are talking about something that has the potential to start wiping out herds or dramatically decreasing herds, then that's something we all need to be concerned about, all the way up from industry down to the person that just likes to go out and and sit on a stump once a year and wait for a deer to walk by. So the disease issue is one for me that we're going to spend a lot of time on it. We're going to understand it better. And that's a hopefully we'll be able to attract the types of dollars we need to do more research so that we understand just what we need to do to, to keep our herd safe out there. So those those two keep me up at night, and I just I think all of that gets tied back to apathy and a big reason why NDA was formed. So there's a lot on our plate for, like I said, a very what is a very small organization, you know, at this very moment. Yeah. So on that disease front, um, you know, I know that you've been quite busy traveling to a lot of different gatherings of of great minds in conservation and biology and in the deer world and everything like that, whether it be related to disease or a whole bunch of different things in general. But I'm just curious on the disease front, are there any updates or news or is there anything going on, you know, behind the scenes that you can share with us in regards to progress in research on CWD or are we, are we coming to understand anything better, whether it be about the disease or, or how to handle it? Yeah, yeah, I think we are. I, I think it's it's top of mind of more organizations now than it ever was. Uh, certainly more state agencies are, are becoming aware of it and worried about things like transferring deer in and out of their states, uh, certain deer parts and all these things that could spread the disease. So it's definitely part of just about every deer conversation. I was just at the Mule Deer Working Group meeting out in Cody, Wyoming, and we spent an awful lot of time talking about chronic wasting disease in particular. Um, as, as you know, there are a lot of different uh, places where mule deer, for example, are, are trapped in one area where they're abundant and transferred to areas where there aren't so many, and there are risks associated with that. So it's no longer that we just that we just do that without without second thought. Now we try to put all the best practices in place before we do those types of things. There's also a lot of work being done to try to develop a live test for, for CWD. One of the problems is the most effective test by far is the one that happens post-mortem. So unfortunately, then you end up having to kill a deer or come across a dead deer before you can test it. So hopefully we can generate more dollars to come up with a live test, which I think would certainly be very helpful uh, to the cause as well. So, yeah, I think it's top of mind in more places across the country. It's generating a lot of headlines. Uh, there's a, a group that we work very closely with called the CWD Alliance, that you can go to their website. It's just cwdalliance.com, I believe, and there's all kinds of information about what we know about CWD and also recent outbreaks. So 
um, yeah, I, I think we're talking about it at appropriate levels now, and we, we have to continue until we can figure it out. How, how close are we to an event? And I know this would be hard to prove. You know, there's no scientific uh, uh, information to back this statement, but how, how close are we to a catastrophic event where all of a sudden all the deer die? because of a CWD? Well, I think a catastrophic event with CWD is, that's not a realistic thing because that's not how the disease works. It's more of a marathon, you know, certainly than a sprint. You know, so for example, a deer could carry CWD for several years and not die. It could, it's like most likely going to die from a hunter's bullet before it dies of CWD. But all the while, this deer, this infected deer is out there walking around. It's depositing prions in the soil, interactions with other deer, and spreading that disease onto other deer that, that may die quickly. You know, we're really trying to learn more now about what's happening in certain populations where CWD has been prevalent for a long time. Are we seeing large percentage drops in populations in those areas? So, you know, CWD isn't something that you wake up in the morning and say, oh, we found out 150 deer were found dead of CWD. Right. But it happens over time, and I think that's one of the challenges for those of us that work on the disease is that we don't have the one big event, you know, the the smoking gun, if you will. And that's hard to get, unfortunately, in this day and age where a headline-reading society, it's hard to get headlines and get people motivated, you know, because of just the nature of the disease. Now, on on top of that, though, how much – you know, the research that is being done, and you you mentioned that you know, at times it can be hard to grab the ear of somebody, you know, to let them know, hey, this is a big deal. This is very important. Um, how much information out there may be, I don't want to say is being ignored, but just not important at this time? I think because of, in, in some ways, a, a lack of information, it's very easy for, for some people to say things like, well, you know, CWD is kind of everywhere, and eventually it will, you know, stronger strains of deer will come along and it'll eventually just disappear, okay? So if somebody says something to that effect, and I'm just, I'm just the, the guy that likes to go out and hunt a handful of times a year, it becomes very easy for me to want to believe that line of thinking. So I'm just going to say, well, eventually it's probably going to go away. I'm not going to have to worry about it because none of us want to have to worry about crisis or, or problems like that. So those people that, that have sort of taken that platform tend to be very effective in getting people on their side, if you will, if there are sides, you know, I hate to say there are sides, but uh, that way of thinking that, oh, it's not really a problem that deer hunters need to worry about. Um, that's a challenge. It is a problem that we need to worry about, and it's a problem we need to understand more. And when when people, it's just general nature. We all want to follow the good news, right, that, all oh, this is something that will eventually go away. Um, with CWD, that's unfortunate because it is something we should be concerned about and want to learn more about. And I just, I really worry about the mixed messages out there that, that people are getting. I, I think that's one place that NDA can be very helpful, and that is, getting the best science available and putting that information out to the public so that they understand it and hopefully allow them to make, you know, a good decision in terms of their own feelings on the disease and and why they should be concerned about it. Yeah. It's a tough one because to, you know, 
as you mentioned, it's it's not the type of disease that's going to result in big headlines of some catastrophic event that gets everyone's attention. It is a very, like you said, a marathon. It's a very slow-moving disease in that you know it can take. You know, we had Russ Mason, the director of or the the head of the Michigan DNR, and he was talking about you know the long-term nature of this disease, but how the impacts are very significant when you get out, you know, many years out from that initial outbreak. Um, you know, when you look at some of these states out west where they've been aware of CWD for a number of decades now, and you have some areas in Wyoming, I think, where the majority of deer in certain areas are infected with CWD, and a result of that is that you don't have old deer. You have deer that are dying after two or three years, and you're going to start seeing issues where populations do reduce, where age structure is impacted significantly and who knows you know 60 years from now maybe we will be seeing what is a catastrophe when you look at it from 2016 to when our kids are growing up and trying to teach their kids to hunt i think this is one of those things that um while we might not see massive short-term impacts we need to be thinking about our children and grandchildren and um, what we can do to make sure that we leave things better for them yeah and i think you did a great job of summing summing that up i mean as I said earlier, if you even just start having small percentage declines in population, there is a, a rippling effect that that has. So, again, I'll put my, uh, what I'll say, uh, just a, not a hunting enthusiast, but I'm just, I'm just sort of a guy that likes to get out and hunt deer every once in a while, okay, maybe four or five days a year. Now, instead, when I go out there and I'm used to seeing six or eight deer on average when I'm out there, now I'm seeing maybe zero or maybe one or two deer all of a sudden my interest level maybe starts to wane a little bit other things become priority and doesn't take very long before you say yeah you know i don't really need a hunting license this year and now all of a sudden you're not hunting your children probably aren't hunting and it's just that rippling effect that you were talking about mark and that is that's something we need to be concerned about so it's not even about losing all the deer it's having populations that are so low that even the idea of, of hunting them and the, the whole uh, you know sp- spirit of the chase if you will starts to decline in the minds of the American hunter that has profound impacts on the hunting economy and all the all the related you know economy out there with you know this just relates to people going on hunting trips and buying equipment and so it's it's a much scarier issue I think than, than some would have you believe so it's hard to have a conversation about CWD without talking about the commercial captive deer and deer breeding industry. Mm-hmm. What is your take on what's going on in that world today? Is yeah. Do we need to be concerned about some things, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think there's things to be concerned about. I mean, the first thing for me is, and, and, and I think a lot of people initially – especially in the deer breeding industry, thought that NDA was being created to be the anti-deer farming organization, and, and that's not true. We're, we're focused on wild deer, period. But there are certainly things that happen, you know, on some of these operations that do impact wild deer and wild deer conservation. Uh, we need to learn more about disease and, and why does it pop up, why, why does it tend to pop up on these captive, um, in these captive situations? Uh, we need to understand that better so that they can do their business better and so that we can understand how to protect our wild deer, number one. I mean, there are other things, too. There are, you know, the, the general 
we have the luxury or a privilege, I guess, of knowing that about 70-plus percent of the people out there respect or accept the idea that deer hunting is an, or deer hunting is an acceptable way to manage populations. But that same group of people, if you poll them and say, well, what do you, how do you feel about essentially walking into a small enclosure and shooting an animal? Now you're not going to get a lot of favorable uh, reviews on that type of thing. I think that type of practice impacts impacts wild deer and wild deer hunting. It impacts it in the eyes of, of people who are watching us. It impacts us in the, in the eyes of the people that vote and really control our sport. I mean, the deer hunters don't control. I mean, we, we control our sport to an extent, but we're only, you know, in terms of total population, we're like 5%, maybe, where all these other people are the ones that have the votes and will make the decisions. So, uh, you know, growing far beyond what would be natural antlers on these deer, uh, you know, genetically engineering them. Uh, you know, to me, for me, that's, that's a problem for, for, you know, because this is a wild animal. Uh, this is a wild animal that we all see and interact with every day. And I think some of those things could, could certainly shed a negative light on, on, on our wild deer herds, on hunting, uh, those of us who are excited about deer. So, you know, it's it's an industry that we need to we need to find a way to work with, uh, but in a way that most importantly, the most important thing is that we do accomplish wild deer conservation. And whether it's a, a captive deer industry or some other industry that impacts that, we have to be aware of it and we have to be willing to step forward and voice our opinion for sure. Yeah, I was I was really glad to see. Um that the National Deer Alliance is is making a clear articulation and that our goal is to focus on wild deer and wild deer conservation. Um, and to your point, you know, we're not, you know, the NDA is not necessarily anti anything else. It's just very pro wild deer conservation and making sure that decisions are made and um, the information is being looked at that keeps that top priority in mind. And, and for me personally, that's very important. Um, I've got strong opinions about some of these things and, um, I just, you know, to the point of everything we've been talking about here, right, th this is such a tremendous animal and privilege we have to be able to hunt it and to be around these these populations of, of animals and chase them and do all the crazy things we do. They're so much fun and so impactful on us and, and help us feed our families. And it, it's something that's so easy to take for granted, but we just can't. And we have to be careful about some of these other things going on that could impact that. Um it's the kind of thing I definitely think about. It's nice to see that you know that there are people taking a stand there and keeping an eye on the prize. Yeah, and I think what we're taking a stand for is we're taking a stand for doing everything we can to protect wild deer. And I, you know, I know people that have deer farms. I've been on deer farms, and they are what I when I look at them, I say, man, these people are doing everything they possibly can to do this the right way. And I think that probably speaks for a high percentage of, of, of that group. But there are a lot of bad actors as well, and I, I think even I think the people that are doing it right are doing it the best way that they can possibly do it. Also, want to weed those bad actors out yeah. as well because they understand what the impact could be. So I certainly don't want to say, you know, we're, you know, against against all of this and that people they're all bad actors and not doing it right. But it's something that we need to continually uh, be concerned about, learn more about, and, and try to work with that group the best we can to protect our wild deer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan, are there any issues? What's keeping you up at night? What else? Any of these things? Are these the things you've been thinking about as a you know, as our as our everyman hunter? Or <laughs> what else? 
I, you know, when it comes to, I, I can understand, you know, for, for me, I'm, I'm passionate about deer hunting. I want to see it, uh, be passed on to generations, but I can understand from where I sit on a daily basis, how it's not the first thing on your mind every day, because it's, you know, it's, you got family, family, you got jobs, you got, you know, oh shit, I got to mow my yard tonight. I mean, so even the simple things like that have to be, can at times come before the last thought of the day is, okay, what's the National Deer Alliance? Should, do I take time to do that or do I take time to, uh, you know, go do something else with my family or, you know, read a magazine or, you know, whatever it is that, that you do. So I think that there has to be some kind of change out there for guys like I guess I would say like me to absorb this this information and and really get the grasp that hey you need to be a part of this there's no you know there's no there's no half ass in it anymore you're either in or you're out because if yeah. you're out you're not helping anybody you're not helping yourself because there is a time and it could be closer than what we think where all this goes bye bye yeah, you know, and I and I hate to look at it as, you know, you're in or you're out. I understand that sentiment for sure. But we I think what we're asking for is we need we need at least a little bit of your time some of the time and that even that will make a huge difference. So I don't expect that every time we send out our weekly on watch newsletter that everybody's gonna read it. But I do expect that a certain percentage will read it and maybe you'll read three out of five or even two out of four. Right. And you may get an, an issue sent to your right to your email from NDA because there's something happening in your area. I do expect that when that does hit your inbox that you're willing to at least click a few buttons and send a letter off to your legislator saying how you feel about an issue. Right. And I think that's part of our responsibility to NDA and, and not I'm not I'm not trying to give you know, a generally uh, people aren't lazy, they're just busy doing all kinds of things right. as you mentioned. Right. I don't want to give them a pass. But the reality is we need to make it as easy as possible as we can for them to do to participate at the grassroots level. And that is and that's one of the reasons why we're virtual, by the way, that we're we we exist online and communicate in that in that manner is because we want to be able to just send you, hey, here's the issue. If if you're interested in weighing in and contacting your legislator, you just simply click here. It'll give you who your legislator is. If you want to adjust the letter a little bit, you can, and then you click send. And now you've participated in the process, and you've probably done that in less than 10 minutes. So we need to make it as easy as possible for very busy people who don't necessarily have deer at the top of their mind, especially throughout the entire year. And we need to make it easy for them to participate in that. And that's I look at that as a lot of the responsibility of not just NDA, but the other deer organizations that we work with. I just, you know, there's obviously, there's people out there who are, have different levels of, um, involvement in any type of topic, but I just, I just feel that, you know, how, if someone says, Hey, we want to take your guns away, there is a gigantic uproar about, a, you know, a certain group of people that they get fired up about wanting to take guns away. I just feel that as of right now, you know, if someone told me, hey, we're going to take away the right to uh, hunt or reduce the right to hunt or you're you're not going to be able to hunt on all the lands that you used to be able to hunt on, that fires me up 
And that's for me why I want to, I, like I like you said, I want to scream it from the mo- mountaintops, telling people to get their ass in gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the that's the biggest difference I think between deer and hunting issues and Second Amendment issues. So, Second Amendment issues, you hear it talked about on national television every day. You know, both parties at every election. Uh, you know, people do believe that they're that they may have it may lose that right. Where deer hunting, they're not talking about it. You know, in presidential debates or. It rarely would come up, especially in the national news or anything like that. So people don't have that sense of something being taken away, and that's where the apathy comes in again. I think most people think that deer hunting in general is, well, it's pretty safe. We don't have to worry about it. So I don't want to say that's a challenge, but that's one of the reasons why you see groups like the NRA, for example, generate so many members and so many really passionate members is they really feel that pressure that this could happen to me and it could happen really quickly. Not so much with the deer hunting world. Uh, you know, there are issues, and it's frustrating that people don't pay more attention to them. But I think that if tomorrow one of the, you know, one of the presidential candidates come out and said, one of the first things I'm going to do is uh, make sure deer seasons are cut back to three days a year, then I think you would probably see you know, that type of outcry from people, people that don't even hunt deer, by the way, because deer impacts so many people just like guns do. I mean, NRA has a nice percentage of members of people who don't even own guns just because they're passionate about not having a right taken away. So a little bit of a different situation, but, you know, that's, that's not an excuse for deer hunters. We just, we need to know more and we need to do better. Yeah. And there certainly are issues that could impact us. It might not be someone cutting our seasons down to three days, but it could be, you know, like we've talked about, it could be populations declining. It could be disease issues. It could be, uh, you know, losing access. It could be, you know, not having the ability to bow hunt within city limits in some areas. There's a, there's a lot of different things um, that, you know, we as hunters can and should be paying attention to. Um, and I don't know, you know, without us standing here preaching, um, I just I feel like if you are passionate enough about deer hunting, to be listening to a podcast about deer hunting like you like it so much that you're driving home right now or you're on the treadmill listening to a couple goobers like us talk about deer if you're that passionate about deer hunting you should also be passionate about trying to protect deer and deer hunting and you know help improve the situation and whether it be with the national deer alliance or with a local group or with just going out behind the house and planting some trees or talking to your neighbor about you know why deer hunting is a positive thing or whatever it might be i think we all owe it back to the resource and to you know the generations to come to to try to do more than just take you know don't just enjoy hunting and eat deer and have a great time with it but give back a little you know there's a lot of ways to do that but i think um we should all at least in my opinion is we should all try to do a little like that something like that yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, we're not asking for a lot here, but you know, whenever we started our strategic planning session and I had all these people sitting in front of me, the first thing I did was I put up a picture of whenever I was young and it was a picture of my dad and my uncle in the back of my dad's pickup truck and they each had shot a buck on opening day in Pennsylvania. This is probably back in 1980 or something like that. I said, every one of us has this picture that's burned in our mind, that represents who we are in terms of deer hunters and that passion. And I ask them, as we go through this process, I want you to keep your personal picture in your mind. 
and remind yourself, what has this sport done for me? What have deer done for me personally? How have they helped shape my life? And even if you're just sort of a weekend warrior that goes out a few times a year, they have impacted your life. And you've had experiences in the outdoors that are uh, you just can't get anywhere else. And I think that's just what I would ask all deer hunters to do is put that picture in your mind. You know, what was that feeling? You know, what were you feeling? And could you imagine yourself not having that opportunity or your children not having that opportunity and their children not having that opportunity? And, you know, that little exercise tends to get get people's juices flowing a little bit, the emotions flowing, and that's what we're talking about here. It's not a scare tactic, and we're not trying to generate controversy. We're talking about protecting an animal and protecting a sport that has done so much for so many people. It's just a real responsibility that we all share, and I'm hoping that NDA can be the conduit to making that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for those listening, what can they do to... Uh, to engage with the NDA or to to be a part of this positive change that that you and, and the team are trying to create. Yep. The very easy easiest thing you can do is sign up and become a member. Uh, go to our brand new website nationaldeeralliance.com and barring some catastrophe between now and the time you hear this, uh, the website will be there. And all you do is you, you provide us your email address and at a minimum your zip code. And we'll be able to alert you to all the issues that are going on out there, but also you'll get our newsletter every week that I know Mark especially works so hard on. <laughs> and um, and then read it most of the time. You don't have to read it all the time, but read it occasionally. Share it with your friends. Get them to sign up. I think that's the first thing. Be aware of the issues. Sign up. It's free. It doesn't cost you a thing. And I think just educate yourself and be more willing to give yourself even just a few more minutes' time to think about deer in a day than what you normally would. And that alone, I think, will be a huge step for not only the NDA, but for deer and for hunting. And anybody can do that. I mean, it's, it's easy to sign up. And if, and if you don't even want the newsletter anymore, you can still become a member, and you can always opt out of the newsletter if you just get tired of seeing it, although I don't know why you would because there's so much good stuff in there. You can still be a member, and we can still alert you whenever there's an issue that you need to be concerned about. So we need a million members to sign up for that thing, and that's, that's what I want to really drive toward. Well, I think uh, I think there'll be a lot of people that would benefit from just like you said, just being a little more aware of some of the issues and the resources that the NDA is putting out there. You know, already, and there's so much more to come. I think with the new website and the tools that are going to be available, but already just you know putting out you know updates on all these things that have been going on. I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, given the fact that you know I work on this stuff, I had no idea before how much is going on related to deer across the country year in and year out i mean all through the year in april in january in june there are things being decided on in city council meetings or in state you know legislators or everywhere there are things going on that impact deer that impact deer hunters and uh i think a lot of the times we as hunters we have no idea this stuff is going on um and then since we don't know we can't ever raise our voices to to say something about it so that's a great first step, just to be in the game. That's right. Be in the game. I mean, at any one time, I could find you a hundred bills that across the country that, in one way or another, impact deer hunting. I don't expect people to to do that same thing and understand all that. That's our job at the NDA. So read the newsletter occasionally. Jump in when we ask you to to send letters or contact the right people, and I think that alone will make a big difference. Agreed. Well, Nick, I think this is uh, this is exciting stuff. I'm excited personally to 
to see where things are going to go in the future. I think we're on a great trajectory. I'm excited to check out the new website here very shortly. And uh, good stuff ahead, right? Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Love what you guys are doing and keep spreading the word. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, good luck this season, Nick. I hope we have some, some more exciting deer stories from you in the coming months. Same here. Good luck to you guys as well. All right. And with that, we're going to wrap this episode up. Now, like we discussed, be sure to check out the new nationaldeeralliance.com, which is now live online. And become a member. It's free, and you'll be updated on all sorts of great stuff. Moving on, we do need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. And if you have a few free seconds, maybe you could send them a thank you too on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express Arrows, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us today and for tuning in every week. I really sincerely appreciate it. And I hope this episode gave you some new insight to consider in regards to our role as deer hunters and conservationists. And finally, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.